0: Acts chapter 2. Let me go ahead and be uh, introducing this, and we'll be moving forward from there. So here's a review. How many of you were here last week? Would you raise your hand? I'm not going to ask who was not here. I'm trying to get a gauge. Keep them up for a moment. Keep them up, 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 trying to get a feel. Um, Looks like 85% of you were here. All right. So last week's message was on tongues, and here's kind of the, the, the preview of that. What led to that? We're in Acts chapter 2. We're going through the book of Acts. Jesus has been resurrected, died for sins. He's been resurrected. He's convinced his apostles that he is alive. And then he ascended to heaven, but he told them before he ascended to wait on the promise from the Father, which was going to be the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So they were to wait in Jerusalem, and he says it's not going to be many days from now, not many days from now. So we know it's down to days when the baptism of the Holy Spirit would come. While they are waiting in an upper room, and of course we know they've been praying, we looked at twice now. We kind of reviewed this heavily last week, but even back in November, at the end of November, we looked at chapter two when on the day of Pentecost, that was a feast. So the Jews had three feasts, annual feasts, uh, that they would gather in Jerusalem. To worship the Lord. And each feast had its own theme. So the the Holy Spirit came down. We we had this this sound of rushing mighty wind. There was this appearance as a fire. It ends up dividing on the 120 people that are in the upper room. They're in Jerusalem. Again, this was literally on the Sunday of Pentecost. And then verse 4 was very key. The people are filled with the Holy Ghost. Now we spent, I'm not going to review it all again. I'm just going to throw the terms. Those of you that are here twice or at least last week, let's review this again. They were not only baptized in the Holy Spirit and placed in the family of God, but they were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So they are placed in the family of God. The Holy Spirit comes on them, but the Holy Spirit also indwells them. But he doesn't just indwell. He literally fills and controls, like he completely controls these people to the point that they end up speaking in tongues. And obviously, we looked at this, they end up spilling out of the house And there are Jews who are gathering probably because they heard the sound of this mighty rushing wind in the upper room. But as these people began to speak in tongues, this grabs their attention. So last week, quick review, we looked at two main things. And I'm not even going to refer to the other one. But we looked at the the nature of tongues. And to boil that down, the nature of tongues was this. It was the ability for these people who are filled with the Spirit to speak in known human languages, recognizable human languages, without ever having learned those languages. All of a sudden, they just, they just start speaking. They have this ability, never learned it. The Holy Spirit gave them that ability. So we noted that it was a miracle of speaking. It was not a miracle of hearing. It's not where people, it's not like one person was saying something and all the different people were hearing it in their language. No, different people were speaking in foreign languages. And some of the Jews who had moved there or were visiting there in Jerusalem for the the Feast of Pentecost, they recognized their home language and they recognized the miracle that it was. All right, now that uh, took us down, and we're going to go down to verse number 14, but quickly, you'll not see it on the screen. So there are these people, they're amazed, how is this even possible? So they saw the nature of tongues is the ability to speak in languages they've never studied. And then we talked about the purpose. What was the purpose of tongues? We spent a lot of time in this. And we noted the purpose was, I I believe, kind of threefold. It was, number one, to get their attention that something very significant is happening. Something significant is being said. In other words, wow, You've got my attention because we know you guys are Galileans. You're not from our homeland. You should not be able to speak that language. You have my attention. And then secondly, it made God's message more clear. It made the message more clear. But third, I believe that it made the message believable. All of a sudden, here Jerusalem is filled with all these Jews and there's these people that are going to claim their attention and you need to shift your theology to what we're going to preach in verses 14 to 41. Why would they listen to them? They would give them no time of day. But now because of this miracle, obviously God is doing something. And that now find, that causes people to find them believable. And some 3,000 will ultimately get saved. Unfortunately, there is a segment of people that in verse 13, and, and it's pretty clear who these people are. These are the, the local Judeans. So, you have Jerusalem and then the surrounding areas, Judea. The local Judeans who only know, who would only know the language of Israel and Palestine, which would be Aramaic, and no doubt the language of the empire, the Roman Empire at that time, was still carrying over from the Greek civilization. So, the Greek language still dominated all around the empire. So, these local people, these Judeans, would speak these languages. But they would not know the miracle that is happening around them. And so some of them just came to this conclusion ah, there's nothing to that. These people are just drunk. They've had too much. They're filled with new wine. But there's a problem with that. And now let's read Peter's words in verses 14 to 21. And obviously, we're kicking off uh, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Note in your notes, it's called part one. As you know, I'm not that big on titles. It's just kind of what is the title of the passage. It's Peter's sermon at Pentecost. This is part one. We'll have at least three parts, possibly four. We'll see how the Lord leads in the breakdown coming up of verses 14 to 41. Today, eight verses. Now let's look at verse 14. Others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. They're just drunk. Verse 14. But Peter standing, notice these words, I wish I had time to break them all down and give the significance, but Peter, he's always the spokesman, standing with the 11, that tells us Matthias really is one of the 12 now, chapter one, Peter lifted up his voice and addressed them. We know that he's ultimately going to be addressing a crowd of 3,000 people. They had no PA system, so he's obviously at a loud decibel level, not that I'm going to equate what we're going to talk about that Peter's doing with being loud. It's not necessarily being loud, but he's having to lift up his voice and he he addresses these people. Men of Judea, again, the people of this region. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. So we have some who are temporarily dwelling in Jerusalem, but they lived in foreign lands. And we have some that lived in foreign lands, but moved to Jerusalem because they were so devout in their faith. Here's his message. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Watch. Speaking in tongues has gotten their attention. You've got my, some don't know what's happening, but the vast majority of these people are like, wow, this is a true miracle. You have my attention. Peter, now I'm going to throw this in. He's no longer speaking in tongues because he's speaking to the local Judeans and the others who would obviously know this language as well. I believe it's pretty clear. He's going to be now speaking and preaching in Aramaic. But he doesn't want that to lose. Now that I have your attention, I want to keep your attention because that miracle was to get your attention and point to what I'm about to say. This is more important than that. This message I'm going to give you is more important than the miracle that you heard. Verse 15. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose. Can I insert as some of you suppose? These people are not drunk. These 120. Uh, that came out of the upper room speaking in tongues. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. If it's not that, then what is it? Peter says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So now here's Peter at this time period, and he's going to go back and he's going to pull from this time period. He's saying, what's happening here has to do with what Joel said back in the Old Testament. And now he jumps in and the next five verses are literally just pulled right out of Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. Here it is in Acts 2, verses 17 to 21. So he's going to pull these five verses, and he's going to throw them at these people and saying, This is not drunkenness. This is, has to do with that. Verse 17. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And now he jumps. And in the last days. So now he's gone to Joel. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So notice that again. In the last days, Peter says, this has to do with what Joel said. In the last days, now pause right there because I'm not going to belabor this later. Clearly, in Peter's mind... He is saying that they are now in the last days. Well, if they were in the last days here, and here we are 2,000 years later, we are in the last days. We're in the time period that starts with the coming of the Messiah, Christ, all the way until he is sets up, he leads up to, and he sets up his millennial kingdom. His literal 1,000 year reign on earth. So this is the last days. And then even going into the millennial kingdom, we're in the last days, by the way. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 1 verse 2 agrees with what Peter says because he says in times past God spoke to the fathers through the prophets but in these last days God has spoken to us through his son. In 1 John chapter 2 verse 18, John the beloved, John the revelator agrees with Peter and agrees with the writer of Hebrews that we're even says we're in the last hour. So we we are in the last days. We know that because of this interpretation that Peter gives us. Verse 17. And in the last days, now he's going back to Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour. Pour is this idea of like more than ever. I will pour out my spirit. God says, I will pour my spirit on all flesh. All flesh. What will that result in? And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your sons shall prophesy and your daughters shall prophesy. He continues, verse 17. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. You keep seeing that word prophesy keeps coming up. That's a period after verses 17 and 18. 17 and 18, there's a period. Watch verse 19 and 20. They make a thought. They go together, and there'll be a period after verse 20. Here comes verse 19. And he's still quoting Joel. Peter says, they're not drunk. This is that. Verse 19. What did Joel write? And I will show, God speaking, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below What are going to be those wonders and signs? Here it is. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. When is this going to happen? Watch. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. So here he's describing things that are going to happen here. And what he says is, now before we actually get into that, there's going to be verse 19 and 20 is going to occur before that happens. What's going to happen? Wonders and signs. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun's going to be darkened and the, moon t- to blood, and the moon turned to blood before the day of the Lord comes. By the way, quick note. What is this day of the Lord? It's called the great day of the Lord, the magnificent day of the Lord. In the King James, I remember seeing it referred to as that terrible, that great and terrible day of the Lord. So which is it? Is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? This day of the Lord, when the Lord comes back, the Messiah, when he returns, is this a good thing or is this a bad thing that's going to be happening? Well, it all depends about your relationship to him. It's going to be really, really, really bad for some, and it's going to be really, really, really good for some. And then verse 21 comes in. Notice the period after verse 20. And now still going, pulling from Joel, chapter 2, Peter, writes, or Peter says, And it shall come to pass that everyone... Who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It shall come to pass. So let's quickly review. Watch. God says, as the last days come, he's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men are going to see visions. Your old men are going to dream dreams. And he says, even on my male servants and my female servants, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all of them, and they will prophesy. And I'm going to give all these wonders just before that happens. You're going to see these things happen in the sky and on the earth. And it shall come to pass that all, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So here's what I want to do in the message. Here's the breakdown of today's message. There's going to be an introduction. It's going to be a little lengthier than normal, more than what I've done. I'm going to do it right here in a moment. We're going to have a very short first point, a little longer second point, but most of our time we're going to spend in the third point this morning. So let me begin with just kind of some introductory thoughts pulling out of verse 14. Look at verse 14. They're filled with new wine. There's nothing to this. These people are just drunk. There's nothing going on. Everybody go back home. And Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them and it's been it's been translated he declared to them what's peter doing he's preaching so here's i want to ask you this literally get your mind working rewind 7 weeks earlier it's john chapter 20 verse number 19 the disciples the 11 on a sunday evening they're in a house with the doors locked why are the doors locked they're afraid of the jews They're afraid of the Jews. Here we are seven weeks later. Peter is standing with the 11, and he's now preaching and declaring in front of the Jews. I ask you, what changed? They're locked. They've locked themselves inside because they're afraid. Because Jesus has been crucified by the Jews, they have to know that they are his followers. So they've locked themselves in for safety, supposedly. They're afraid of them. Seven weeks later, they're out in the the wide open, no doubt spilling over into the temple, preaching very boldly. Very boldly, very forcefully, what happened? What changed? I propose to you two things. We know the second, obviously, right? But I would propose to you the first thing. They know that Jesus is resurrected. They know this for a fact. They're convinced they've seen him multiple times that. So the knowledge of the assurance of the resurrection of Christ, along with the filling of the Holy Spirit, has now made them bold, gone from timid and afraid to now world beaters. And they're preaching. One of the things that we're going to notice this morning is right at the outset, could I even refer to Pentecost as the birthday of the church? Notice that at the very birthday of the church, God gives us a sample of what he uses and what he has used to literally bring billions of people into the faith and to bring billions of people to salvation. He's been doing it for 2,000 years. What is he using God has, has, he then did, has been, and will continue to use, preaching. God used preaching. In fact, write this down. A man named John R.W. Stott has noticed that in the book of Acts, preaching is very significant. How significant? He writes that there are no less than 19 significant Christian sermons or speeches within the book of Acts. The book of Acts has 28 chapters, and in this we're going to have 19 Christian Speeches or sermons, not counting others who are going to make their speeches and sermons that are against Christianity, but this is what this is a book of sermons, and so if you 've ever wondered man i 've been to Graceview a few times i 'm not really maybe i 'm not part of you yet, but I notice. All of your little breakout groups, everything is about studying the Bible and teaching the Bible and preaching the Bible. It's like preaching is so prominent at Graceview. I realize there are lots of churches that are the same, and there's lots of churches that preaching is not prominent at their church. Why is preaching so prominent at Graceview? Write it down. It's prominent at Graceview because it was prominent in the New Testament. God uses preaching God, this is not man's idea, this is not man's invention. God uses preaching on a regular basis. In fact, years ago I read uh, from a man, I've referred to him often, William Barclay. He did a study, I'm sure it included mainly the book of Acts, but no doubt beyond the book of Acts, of words in the New Testament that are used to describe preaching. What, are they, what is preaching like? So here's what I want to offer you. He found four words in the Greek language. I'll not give you the words, but I want to give you the ideas. Four different words for four different ideas of what preaching was like in the New Testament. Here's the first idea. It had to do preaching. And by the way, the first two are are the most dominant words that are used over and over. New Testament preaching carried the idea, number one, of a herald. A herald. H-E-A-R-D-A-L-D. When I say a herald, what do you think of goes along with a herald? A what? Okay. What's, what's over a, a herald? A king. So here's the first idea of preaching in the New Testament. There's a herald who has decree, a decree or decrees from his king, and here's his job, just to simply and very plainly state the facts. That's preaching. You get your message from God and you state the facts of the Christian message. That's the first and even the prominent idea of preaching in the New Testament. It's this. If you study the sermons in Acts, you're going to find certain points over and over and over that make up Christian preaching. These are the thoughts. We're going to see them in the next few weeks. Jesus fulfills the prophecies and he is the Christ. But he's not just the Christ. He's the Son of God. He died on a cross. To save people. He resurrected from the dead on the third day. You can only be saved through Christ. There's salvation in no one else. Only through Christ. Those are just the plain, simple facts. Preaching declares the facts. We declare facts about God. God is holy. Just hear them. Just hear them. God is holy. He hates sin. God is just. He has to punish sin and will punish sin. But God is loving He loves so much that he sent his own son to take the punishment for sin. And because his son's punishment for sin as a propitiation, we looked at that word at Christmas, because what he did on the cross was a sufficient propitiation for sin, that allowed God to now give away salvation for free because God is a gracious God. Well, these are the facts. The second kind of preaching entails this. It involves teaching. And it means to work out The meaning of the facts to work out the significance what's the implications of that okay we got the facts but now what are the implications of the facts and it's kind of driving that if if you were to hear just the facts but you walk away saying okay yeah so what the second aspect of preaching takes the facts and it answers the question here's the so what and it now drives okay God hates sin God has to punish sin. So what? Oh, well, here's what you need to know. Here's the ramifications of that. And it drives it home. It answers the so what question. The third idea of preaching in the New Testament has to do with exhortation. And it literally is this idea. It pleads with people. Having given the facts and explained the facts and shown that the facts are biblical and how they all connect, it now pleads with people. Would you please fit your life To the ramifications of the facts. It calls for an action. It calls for repentance. And then the fourth is like the third, but a little different. It calls for people to take not just the facts to be saved, but apply the first three areas to all of your life. Don't just get saved, but ultimately give God all of your life and all of its parts. So there's kind of an overview. What is New Testament preaching like? It declares the facts. It teaches the implications of the facts. It calls you to adjust your life because of the facts. And then it wants to apply it to all the rest of your life. Barclay writes, fully rounded preaching has something of all four aspects. So before we hit our first point, I want to do this. I want to encourage you. Preaching gripped my heart in 1979. This is just a personal testimony. Here's what I'm telling you. I remember God used Ed Yeoman particularly and my grandfather secondarily. 1979, June, God used preaching to grip my heart, to break my heart, to convince me that Jesus' death was for me and it was enough and it built faith in me. God used it. Preaching is the method God uses. God uses preaching. It's one of his primary, it's the primary method God uses to bring people to faith. You catch what I just said. What did I just do? I gave you a personal testimony. I shared with you some facts. It works. God uses it. Now I'm gonna go further than that. Because God uses it, I'm gonna implore you and plead with you. Be sure you are regularly putting yourself under preaching. Put yourself, because God uses it, because it's God's method, His method. Put yourself regularly under preaching. Don't let yourself go weeks and weeks without being put under preaching has nothing to do with who's doing the preaching. It's God's method when the preaching is coming from the Word of God, and it's accurate with His Word. Now, let's notice three things this morning. Number one, Peter, in his preaching, corrects the skeptics. Peter corrects the skeptics. And I've kind of laid the background already. Let me reread verse 14 and 15. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwelled. You see how he just made two groups? There's men of of Judea who the only life you know is living, like someone in your past moved to Judea, maybe even in Jerusalem. This is the place to be if you're a Jew. That's been your life. Great-great-grandparents, grandparents, grandparents, father, whatever it was, moved you there. All you've known is this life. And so you've learned Aramaic and you've learned Greek. And you don't have a clue the level of of the miracle that you've just experienced by hearing these people speak in languages they've never learned. Now look at verse 14. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Because some of you don't understand the miracle. You think it's just gibberish speaking in tongues. I want to now tell you what really happened. And here's a simple explanation. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. The third hour of the day, you guys have a a note in your study Bibles, right? Or you, you have a note down the bottom. How many of you already checked that? You know the answer. What time of day is it? 9 a.m. They start their day, their time period at 6 a.m. This is the third hour, so this is 9 a.m. So what's Peter's point as he's correcting and refuting these skeptics? Write it down. Peter's point is that they're not drunk because not even drunks are drunk at 9 a.m. 9 a.m. Not even drunk. You would be hard-pressed to find a drunk drunk at 9 a.m. You might find one, 120. Furthermore, write this. Not even drunks are drunk at 9 a.m., much less Jews who are so devout in their Jewish faith that they have journeyed to the city of Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. So this is a real simple answer, very straightforward, and really that's all he does. No one jumps back and says, yes, they are. No, he just just dispelled that whole thing very clearly. Come on, guys. In essence, what he's saying is, that is ridiculous. You know they're not drunk. I realize some of you don't know what's going on, but many of you do, and you guys should be telling them, no, this is a miracle. So number one, they're not drunk. Not even drunks are drunk at 9 a.m. Second thing I want us to notice. I told you the first point would be very brief. The second is also brief. I want you to notice in verses 19 and 20, the coming fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. After you write that, and I've got to kind of prepare you, all right? Today's message is going to be tricky. It's It's kind of complicated. I've got it in my head, I think. But I don't know that I'm going to have the ability to really get this across in just one setting. You say, what makes this complicated? Now first, here's my first confession. Did you notice that I'm switching orders? I'm acknowledging that. I'm not starting in verse 17 and moving through. I'm, I'm jumping to verse 19 and 20. And I want to talk about that first. And there's a reason why. All right. So let's talk about the... Watch, the coming fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. And here's where I want to start. Peter, an apostle. Let that sink in. This man is specially chosen by God. Specially called, specially trained, specially commissioned. Specially empowered, given authority. I'm talking about a man who's going to write two books of the Bible himself. But he's not just Peter... Kind of the first among equals of the apostles. He's Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. And here's why I'm be- I'm talking about a man at this moment who is as powerful and authoritative as any mere man in the history of the world. Jesus the Christ is the God man. He's not a mere man. Put all other mere men in a category, and I'm gonna contend. Now y'all know I like my favorite, y'all know my favorite mere man in the Bible, right? pick that up it is Paul and I like David as well love David and Paul but Peter is on that same line he is not less authoritative than Paul Peter filled with the Holy Spirit this authoritative person tells us that at least to some degree what's happening at Pentecost is at least to some degree a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy and I'm wording it that way on purpose here's where it gets tricky we're not going to read Joel today. But if you were to go home and just say, I want to read Joel. I'm going to get my study Bible out and read a little background. Good luck. You're not going to find a lot out about Joel. There's not a lot known. We don't know exactly the time period. But if you were to study that and get to now listen, get to chapter 2 of Joel, verses 28 to, to 32, and study it out. Here's what you're going to I want you to write it down. The main, the main interpretation of Joel, the section we're reading has to do with events, and it points to events that are going to lead up to the millennial kingdom and ultimately are going to talk about things that are going to happen during the millennial kingdom. That's the ultimate fulfillment. It's about the millennial kingdom. And it will not completely be fulfilled until that time. So Joel's prophecy has to do with the millennial kingdom, this section. When it's completely fulfilled, it'll all be in the millennial kingdom. So nothing in Acts chapter 2 ultimately fulfills the whole passage. And so that's where it gets a little tricky. What is is Joel saying? He's saying the time is going to come. Joel, again, probably 7, 800 B.C., maybe 600 some B.C., is warning. Not even sure if it's the northern tribes or the southern. I should not get off into this. Anyway... He's going to warn them that because of their idolatry, God's going to judge them. And that sure enough happens in two phases. They're carried away to Assyria captive. And then some are carried away to Babylon captive. But ultimately the good news is these things are going to happen at the end of the age. At the last days, things are going to lead up to the millennial kingdom. And then they're going to happen in the millennial kingdom. Just glance real quickly at the main interpretation with that view. What's Joel's prophecy about? At the last days, when you get in the millennial kingdom, God's going to pour out His Spirit on all flesh. Sons and daughters will be prophesying. Young men will be seeing visions, old men dreaming dreams. The servants will be prophesying, males and females. It's going to be a great day. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is going to be saved. Right before that, though, did you catch at the end of verse 20? Right before that happens, there's going to be this series of events. And that's what I'm talking about right here. Verse 19 and 20 are the coming fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. You Ready? Watch. The ultimate fulfillment of the whole passage is right before the Millennial Kingdom and in the Millennial Kingdom. But it was a year ago. It shocked me. I actually looked in my file a while ago. It was a year ago that we started launching into Matthew 24. Matthew 24 and 25. The Olivet Discourse. And I had all that prophecy and it scared me to death. And it's a big passage and I remember... Uh, Just begging and pleading, Lord, every week. I need you to show us what does this mean. And I think he did unfold that. But do you remember we learned something? It is possible for an Old Testament prophet to make predictions here. Remember, here's the Old Testament prophets. Here's the birth of Christ. Here's Christ dying on the cross. Here's Pentecost right here. We've been in this thing called the church age for 2,000 years. Don't know how long it's going to last. But at some point we're going to get to the tribulation at the end of the tribulation and then going into the millennial kingdom which will last a thousand years on its own. Watch. It is possible for an Old Testament prophet to make a prediction that has a near fulfillment. Like he makes the prediction, it happens in his own lifetime. Or it happens years later, dozens, 50, 100 years later, several hundred years later. But it is also possible for him to make a prediction here that is ultimately going to be about the millennial kingdom. Way later. The coming to us. The still coming fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. But watch. It is also possible for them to make a prophecy that has a near fulfillment. And a distant yet future to us fulfillment. But also to come into this age and find A partial fulfillment of the prophecy. A pre-fulfillment, not the whole, but a pre- and partial in this time period. That's what's happening in our text. So here it is again. Joel makes this prophecy that's ultimately about that, but it has a pre- and partial fulfillment here at Pentecost that is going to affect the church age. Write this thought. Verses 17, I don't know if this was even in your notes or not, but Here's the thought, and then we'll be done with second point. Verses 17 and 18 and verse 21, these are going to have a pre-fulfillment and a partial fulfillment. doesn't mean verse 17, 18, and 21 were completely fulfilled at Pentecost, but they have a pre- and a partial fulfillment there. Ultimately, they're going to be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. You say, Jeff, why did you skip verse 19 and 20? Because verse 19 and 20 were not fulfilled in any way necessarily there at Pentecost. They're referring to things that's still yet to happen. How do we know this? Watch. I'm going to zero in on our timeline. So we're here at Pentecost, A.D. 30, 33 maybe. And Revelation is written in the 90s. Revelation is going to make prophecies and predictions about things that are going to happen that match What Joel wrote here. And they're not going to happen until that day. For instance, if you want to write these down. Revelation. You're like, so what were these predictions about these wonders in in the heavens above and signs on the earth below? Blood, fire, vapor of smoke. Sun turned to darkness. Moon to blood. What are those predictions have to do with? When is that going to happen? Revelation. I'm not going to look them up this morning. I'm not even going to put them on the screen. But Revelation 6, verse 12 to 14. If you were to look that up, Revelation 6, 12 to 14, here's what you'd find. The sun is going to be blackened. The moon will be like blood. And stars will be falling. Revelation chapter 8, verse 7 and 8. On the earth, there's going to be fire. This is literally mentioned in Revelation 8, 7 and 8. Fire and blood. And there's going to be this burning mountain, a great burning mountain that's cast into the sea I'm assuming a great burning mountain cast into the sea, put that combination together, and there's probably going to be this vapor of smoke that follows it. But if that's not enough, Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 specifically talk about a bottomless pit that is going to be opened up, a shaft. So this creature is going to be given a key to this shaft of the bottom. This is going to happen right before the great day of the Lord, right before the Millennial Kingdom starts. This shaft is going to be open that goes into the bottomless pit. And all this smoke is going to come out. And it's going to darken the sun on earth. It's going to be, And then there's going to be these locust creatures that are co- going to come out. And they're going to be like making war on people. You don't want to be here when that happens. This is a bad time. All these horrible things are happening. But this is literally the same thing as Joel saw. He just saw it hundreds of years before Christ came. John the Revelator saw it 50, 60 years after Christ died on the cross. All right, now, third point. So you see what we've just done? We've sectioned off verse 19 and 20. They, they were not fulfilled at Pentecost. They're yet future still. But what about these other three verses? Third point today, if you want to write the word that I have on the screen, that is fine. I'm going to encourage you, actually, to not write, a, not, not write what, what I put on there Thursday night and really use the word partial. So third thought this morning is, On the screen, you'll see, and you could write that, the previous fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Or what could we say? The partial fulfillment. You say, Jeff, why did you call it the previous? Because we're here, and there was this previous fulfillment of Joel's prophecy here at the day of Pentecost. And I apologize. I know this is already starting to tangle together, but we're hopefully in the process. Just hang with it. Ask the Lord, Lord, give me clarity of what's going on here In Acts chapter 2, as Peter kicks off his message on the day of Pentecost. So what is this partial fulfillment of Joel's prophecy? Look at verse 17. Y'all ready? Here we go. Verse 17. They're not drunk. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now Peter just starts launching into it. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my flesh on, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That's something new. I had this fear that hit me the other day. Like Jeff, our our congregation is not going to appreciate this passage because all we've known is the conditions of this passage being in place all our life. We don't realize what it was like in the Old Testament. You say, what was it like in the Old Testament? Well, here's an idea, and you'll write it down in a moment. The Old Testament, here's what it saw. Mainly... Jewish prophets, Jewish priests, watch. I'm going to make a distinction. All the prophets in the Old Testament, some of the priests, some of the kings and the judges, they, in the Old Testament, they would have the Holy Spirit come on them for a period of time for a specific task, but then the Holy Spirit would leave. That's what happened in the Old Testament. If I could say it this way. Not many people had the Holy Spirit come on them and it was not permanent. Hear it again. Not many, not permanent. Psalm chapter 51 verse number 11. David is confessing his sin. You remember that? And David says, cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. I've never had to pray that. I don't have to pray, Lord, please don't take the Holy Spirit from me. I cannot have the Holy Spirit taken from me. But David, what he's saying is... Lord, as the King of Israel, you've given me the Holy Spirit to be able to run the kingdom the way you want it to be run. Please don't take him. I don't want to do this on my own. He feels dependent on the, on the presence of the Holy Spirit to help him govern the land of Israel. That's the Old Testament. Not many, like hardly anyone, would have the experience of the Holy Spirit on them. Could I propose to you that when we're reading, what we're reading this time period, you rewind about... 30 years, and they've gone through 400 years without a person having the Holy Spirit come on them in the way as it had previously. That's a long time. Like no prophets in the land. That was kind of the struggle of the Old Testament. And then along comes Joel. He says, oh, but there's coming a day. And here's what I want you to write. Joel's ultimate fulfillment, what Joel's prophecy means in its totality Watch, is that when we get to the millennial kingdom, everyone, all the people who enter the millennial kingdom will have the Holy Spirit. All the people who enter the millennial kingdom, all of them, 100%, will have the Holy Spirit upon them. Is that on the, is that, let's get that next note. I I thought, well, maybe not. No, I didn't include that. I'm sorry. That's already up there. You're good. So now what's happening with Peter? Everybody with me? Watch. Watch. Joel says when the millennial kingdom comes, 100% of the people entering the millennial kingdom, because there's going to be people in physical bodies, they're not going to take the mark of the beast. They're going to treat God's people well. After the battle of Armageddon and all this destruction has taken place... The Lord's going to call all the people, and the angels are going to help gather them. And he's going to put the goats on one side and the sheep on the other. And the goats are going to go away into everlasting punishment. These are unbelievers. And these people who are on the earth at the end of the day, and they may not have even fully put their total faith and trust in Jesus yet, but they haven't done these other things. They had enough to know, I don't do those things. These people are going to go into the millennial kingdom in natural bodies but they will be given the Holy Spirit. And obviously at that point they will have seen Christ and trusted Him. Now with that in mind, what is Peter trying to show us is happening here in Acts chapter 2. 100% of the people who are going in the Millennial Kingdom have the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian right now, you will be there in a glorified body and you will have the Holy Spirit. These other people will be there in Physical bodies going into... Somebody's got to repopulate the planet. Those of us who are Christians in the church age, we will rule and reign with Christ. All the people, whether physical bodies on earth or glorified bodies, we are all have the spirit. But what Peter... What's, why are you, if that's the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy, then why are you using it here? Because people are saying, Peter is saying, not 100% of the people on earth, but 100% of a group of people... In this church age, will have the Holy Spirit poured on them. Hey, these people are just drunk. No, 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 they're not. This is that that was spoken. Peter, an apostle, filled with the Holy Spirit. This is that which was spoken by him. Not the whole fulfillment of it, but a partial fulfillment of it. So that 100% of the people who are in the church age who put their faith and trust in Christ, we all receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I'll pause right there. There are some people, as they interpret today's passage, that's it they would stop right where right there and they'd be done we could pray and go home and you're like man i like those guys i wish i wish we had one of those guys but we wouldn't be getting the whole story some people's interpretation of the passage is this simple oh yeah they thought they were drunk but really this was a pre-fulfillment where god poured out the holy spirit he lets the church. All of us Christians get a foretaste of what life is going to be like in the millennial kingdom. We just get a a good taste of it in advance. And they don't even dress the rest of the passage. Like as if the only fulfillment of this text, it's not verse 19 and 20. And it's not even the real content. Verse 17b, 18. It's just the first part of verse 17. God pours out his spirit and let's move on. Like that's the whole of it. But that doesn't tell the whole story. Because I would ask you this. Why did God pour out His Spirit in the church age? Again, if you're taking notes, I want to propose to you the following. Pentecost happened because God poured out His Holy Spirit to qualify many people, many people, to be able to declare His truth. Many people are now empowered and anointed by the Holy Spirit to be able to declare God's truth Regardless of multiple things, and it's made clear in the text. Regardless of their race, regardless of their age, regardless of their gender, regardless of their place in life, their social status, their ranking in society. Regardless of any of those things. And I believe that the 120 in the upper room kind of modeled this. 120 people in the the upper room, there were men, there were women. There were no doubt some young and some old. And they no doubt had different ranks among them. But they're all filled with the Holy Spirit and they're all speaking and declaring the Word of God. This thought hit me. And I don't know the answer. I'm just going to throw it out. Maybe you chew on it a little bit. Let this sink in. 120 people. On the, morning of, on, the, on the day of Pentecost are now filled with the Holy Spirit and they're equipped to go speak for God because they've been anointed with His Holy Spirit. Has there ever been a time from that point previously where there were that many people on earth that had the Holy Spirit and were anointed to speak on God's behalf? From that time, any time before, were there 120 on the earth? I would assume no. Do, do you guys just feel the significance of that? Do you see how... They had just gone 400 years with no one that fit that category. David definitely fit it. Over here is Moses, has the Spirit on him. There were 70 in his day. Temporarily had the Spirit, if you want to study it all out. Has there ever been a time where 120 had the Holy Spirit? On the day of Pentecost they do. And by the way, that number has been multiplied many, many, many times over. Why? Why is God doing this? Look at verse 17. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Look at verse 18. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. So what's this outpouring of the spirit? What's the purpose? It's to equip God's people to prophesy. Like similar to that in the Old Testament. Not with the authority of being a single prophet who's writing the word of God. But to be able to interpret the word of God and to be able to declare God's truth. With boldness. I want to offer you. There's many ways you could define prophecy. What does it mean to prophesy? So I want to offer a couple of thoughts. Write this down. To prophesy can mean, obviously everybody knows this, can mean to foretell, to predict, to foretell the future. It certainly can mean that. But it more often means to foretell. can mean to foretell, but it means to foretell. That's particularly the idea of of prophecy moving forward in the church age. Can I go further? And I am going to go further because the gift of prophecy that's given to some people who are anointed by and dwelt by, filled by the Holy Spirit, the gift of prophecy often goes further than just forthtelling God's truth. I want to offer you, write this down, that it often entails proclaiming God's Word with a unique authority. A unique authority that comes. Where do they get the, Where's that person get that boldness? Where's that person get that authority? Man, I've never heard them talk like that. Why do they act so different when they're doing that? They get this authority and boldness because they have a first hand message from God for a specific audience. That is often a form of prophecy. Really, it has to do with preaching. Preaching, the idea of prophecy, the idea of preaching. Did you catch what I just said? Here's this person gets this first hand message from God. And they know they're supposed to, it's it's as though God says, hey, 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 you, you, you go tell them this. Okay? And they go and they tell a person or a small group or a group of people or a large group of people. They just start telling them what God, the facts and the teaching behind it and the pleading behind it and apply it to all of your life. Now, I don't want you to hear what I didn't say. That, that authority, that first-hand message, doesn't mean that someone, they read the Bible and they come up with their own unique interpretation of Scripture. That's not what I'm talking about. Nobody has the authority to come up with their own unique interpretation. God showed me another way to apply this and interpret this. Nobody else has ever, done, and ever seen this, and I'm preaching it this way. No, you don't have that right to do that. What I'm saying is, is when somebody's reading the Word of God, and God speaks and says, you go tell them this message. And when that happens, there's this firsthand authority that comes with it. And it's the gift of preaching, in essence. And this is what's being described in the text. Preaching differs from teaching. How? Preaching calls for a verdict. Preaching calls for a response. You need to act. Preaching is more bold. Preaching is more forceful than teaching is quick reminder right here is where some people would just stop and like okay in fact one of the guys that i read i won't tell you his name i just totally disagree with him on this he believes all this stuff in verse 17 and 18 the main point holy spirit was poured out and all this stuff in here it's all going to happen in the millennial kingdom as if it's not happening now but here's the problem the point that's being made by Peter is no longer do you have to be a Jewish male prophet, priest, or king 30 years old or older to be able to stand and authoritatively declare the Word of God. You no longer have to have that. Things have changed drastically. Would you look at verse 17? I want you to notice this, these words I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters, sons and daughters, shall prophesy. You have a definition of prophecy in front of you. Verse 18. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I'll pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. So some of you are thinking, you should be saying this. Like, okay, hang on, Jeff. Let me get this straight. Taking the definition you just gave us and what you seem to be implying here, do you believe that women... Can have the gift of prophesying. Yes. Okay, Jeff, you just said it has to do with the idea of preaching. (laughs) You don't believe in women preachers, do you? Well, of course I do. Don't you? Sure I do. And I realize some of my conservative friends in the room right now are going, what? What? Absolutely I do. This is not just something that's going to happen in the millennial kingdom. It's something that's happening now. To deny that would be to deny what is clearly happening in the world. You're like, Jeff, that's experience. But it would be to clearly deny what the Bible says is happening. It would be clearly to deny what's going to happen in chapter number 21, verse number 9. If you want to take notes, this man named Philip, who's an evangelist, he's going to have four virgin daughters who prophesied. They declared the word of God with boldness and forcefulness. They were preaching. When you go to 1 Corinthians, where we swam around in so much last week, what did we find? We find in chapter 11, I'm not going to put it all on the screen, if you want to make a little note, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 4 and 5, Paul is going to talk about women praying and prophesying. Right there in connection with men who are praying and prophesying. So this is a key thought. Paul is not denying that women have speaking gifts, whether those gifts be praying to the Lord genuinely, the gift of tongues, or the gift of prophesying preaching. He's not denying the gift. All Paul does is he qualifies and he instructs the women of 1 Corinthians, in First Corinthians, the women of Corinth, the Christian women there who have these gifts, he instructs them the proper time and the proper place to use the gift. So I want you to take, I have several references put out there on your handout. And you take that home because here's what I'm contending, that Peter's point is there is a pre-impartial fulfillment of Joel's prophecy that took place at Pentecost, and it is spilling forward. There were women, all of them in the upper room, all of them men and women. We have a list of some of the women. Uh, they all were prophesying and preaching. Philip again, his daughters prophesied four of them. Go if you would, hold your spot here. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where we were last year, at the end, last week, not last year, last week, at the end. Go to 1 Corinthians 14, because I want you to see something you'll not see on the screen. Look at chapter 14, 1 Corinthians. And you also see in there 1 Timothy. When you look up the 1 Timothy verse, if you're like, I need to kind of see what's going on here. We're now going to tell what is Paul's instruction to these women who have these gifts. When and where and how they are to employ, deploy these gifts. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, Paul writes this letter to Timothy. He's, what he's saying is, I'm the, I am writing I want to come to you soon. I'm, I hope to come to you soon. If I don't, I'm writing these things to you, Timothy, so you'll know how to set things in order in the church. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 12 through 15, Paul says, tell the women that they are to keep silent in the church. They're not to have authority over men. They're not to teach men. So with that in mind, now I'm going to make the other half of the audience upset with me. So now that I've made my conservative side over here, ultra conservative, like he believes in women preachers, well, now I'm going to make the other side. But that's fine because I've got text to back it up. So we're just going to go with what the Bible says. It's good. It's good, safe ground. Look at verse 33 of 1 Corinthians 14. Admittedly, the context here is tongues. We never did have time to get to this. And you ought to read it to add more context. Paul gives all these qualifications. Like, hey, Corinthians, if you do, have, if you do speak in tongues, only two. Only two people. At the most, three. Oh, by the way, if you don't have an interpreter, they need to be quiet. And don't act like you can't control yourself. I'm out of control. Couldn't help. No, you don't have an interpreter, sit down and be quiet. We've already had three today. But I've got to no, be quiet. Oh, And oh, by the way, the context, look at verse, chapter 14, verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. A very important phrase is the next five words. Look at the middle of verse 33 as in all the churches so some people like to read what i'm about to read and say that's just cultural to the corinthians they had some problems and paul's just writing to them well then why did he tell timothy the same thing for the ephesian church in first timothy and if that wasn't clear enough oh it's crystal clear here as in all the churches of the saints the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but should be in submission as the law says If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, with that in mind, go back to verse 18, because you should be thinking right now, hold on, Jeff, I thought you said you believe they can have the gift, speaking gifts. Oh, yeah. Well, if they have the gift, but can't use it, then when are they supposed to use it? Go back to verse 18. It's not on the screen. Paul tells the Corinthians, I thank God that I speak like this actually happens. I speak in tongues more than all of you. Hey, Corinthians, I speak in tongues more than all of you. What that tells me is Paul has the gift and Paul uses the gift. Paul has the gift. Paul uses the gift, but he qualifies it. He says, nevertheless, in church, in church, I would rather speak five words with my, with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. You see what he just did? He made a distinction he says, I have the gift of tongues, and I use the gift of tongues. I just don't use it in the church when the church is gathered, all of us together. So, Jeff, what's your point in verse 18 and 19? Here's my point. Paul is making the distinction. Hey, women do. Some have. You have what's, your, what's your spiritual gift? Some have the spiritual gift of prophecy, that the nature of that, which is preaching, declaring God's word, calling for action. But they're not supposed to use it in the mixed assembly of men and women in church. You say, well, then when are they supposed to use it? Well, if you're not using the gift in church, then you're using the gift outside of church. Paul's like, oh, I use the gift of tongues out there where I need it. We're all here in Corinth. We all speak the same language. We don't need to be speaking in tongues. Let's just talk the language we all know. I need it out there. You say, when are women to use this? With other women. Women have the ability to rightly interpret. They get a message from God for a specific audience. It's just not to get up and stand and preach to the mixed congregation that has men. So you say, Jeff, you believe in women preachers? Yes. You believe in women pastors? Absolutely not. No. Absolutely not. And that's made clear also in 1 Timothy. Now that I made you all upset, go back to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. You say, man, that was probably disruptive to that culture. Yeah, not nearly as bad as what verse 18 would do to them. Even on my male servants and female servants. I'm going to pour out my spirit. Y'all know that the Roman Empire at any given time probably had around 50 million slaves. Watch. Here's what this means. In the church age and going back to where it first kicked off. Here's what would happen because of what Peter is saying. He prophesied it there. It's going to happen there. But it's already starting here. What you have, here's a slave owner. The Bible is not endorsing slavery. It just deals with it. Here you have a slave owner who has slaves. He gets saved. They get saved. Or maybe they get saved. He gets saved. Here's the bottom line. Here's this slave owner who has a slave. And in the church, the slave has the gift of prophecy and in the church the slave is his leader down at the church over in essence leading the slave owner and that would be probably a major adjustment to their whole psyche because slaves had no value placed upon they were literally had the value of a shovel or a rake if you want to kill them you can kill them and there was no repercussion and now God comes along and says oh by the way I'm going to put my spirit in slaves who become Christians. And I'm going to give them the gift of prophecy. And you will listen to them. Like, yeah, deal with it. Write that down. So in the Roman culture, soon there would be owners whose slaves were their leaders in the local church. You get in the picture? What happened at Pentecost means there's no believers who are disqualified from declaring God's truth during the church age based on, Hey, you're, you're too young. Hey, you're too old. You're too poor. You're too poor. You don't have any money. No, that's not the question. Do they have a message from God? Is the question. You're the wrong gender, or you're the wrong station of life. You're not in the right class. Well, Christ debunks all of that by pouring out his spirit on everyone within the church. Quickly, and we're coming down the home stretch, go back to Numbers chapter. 20, I'm sorry, Numbers 11. Got your Bible? Flip over to Numbers chapter 11. Here's the scene. Shortly before this, Moses referred to the number of the people of Israel as around 600,000 people. I thought 600,000. Moses is the man of God who's receiving the message of God. And his job, Everybody feeling this? We're at Numbers 11. His job is to get the message out to 600,000 people. God has told me this. He's given me his Holy Spirit. I'm to declare this to 600,000 people. That's a lot of, a lot of responsibility. So the Lord comes along and says, Moses, I'm going to take some of the Spirit that I've put on you, and I'm going to put it on these 70 guys over here. And he does, and they start prophesying. But then the Spirit leaves. But there's these other two guys who are still in the camp, still prophesying because they still have the Spirit on them. And there comes this young, young buck guy. And he comes up and says, hey, we got these two guys still prophesying, Moses. And Joshua even gets in on it. Good old Joshua, young, not where he ought to be here. Moses, make them stop. Apparently we got two guys still prophesying in the camp. Make them stop. Look at verse 29. Moses said to him, to Joshua, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. You're jealous for me? Yeah, they're, they're over there trying to declare the word of God. You think I'm jealous of that? Guys, picture it this way. If you were a missionary and you're the only Christian in a city in some part of the world, you're the only Christian in that city, and you've got to reach 600,000 people. That's your task. And the Lord would come along and say, Hey, you want me to send you a couple other guys that actually have the Holy Spirit living in them? No. This is my area. I do this. This is me. I'll promise you they would welcome. You want me to send you 120 that have the Holy Spirit? Yes. Send them. Bring them. Are you jealous for me? I wish all of God's people had the Holy Spirit. Moses' desire, his will, his wish actually happened. 2,000 years ago at Pentecost. Write it down. Moses longed for the time when all of God's people would have his spirit so they could be his spokesman, And that day has come. God's Spirit is in all believers. After chapter 19 of the book of Acts. And after Romans chapter 8 verse 9. All of Christ's followers have received His Spirit. Guys, do y'all know what that means? If you're a Christian, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, watch. Watch you were an enemy of god your sin made you an enemy of god you were at war and you're losing you are going to lose but christ came in stepped between god and you he took all the punishment and as a result you've been reconciled to god you've been made at one and friends with god but because of that 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that God has now given us the ministry of reconciliation for other people. Because their sin makes them at war with God. We're to go help them be reconciled. So much so that we're called ambassadors for Christ. Literally, the Bible says, verse 20, God making his appeal to them through us. God making his appeal. So we're to go around saying, be reconciled. Be reconciled to the Lord. That's why we have the Holy Spirit. To declare the message of God. All of God's people have been given the Spirit. Quickly, verse 17. Look again. So you have your sons and your daughters. And I'm not spending long here, frankly, because no one I read had touched this second part of verse 17. And I'm going to use the time factor as a good reason to only spend a brief time in verse 17b. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men, when I pour the Spirit, some would say that's just in the future millennium. Maybe, maybe, but others may say not. Go with me on a quick journey. Fast forward to the millennial kingdom. God's poured his Spirit out, and there's these young men. I got a vision, and they saw a vision, and they start preaching and declaring and prophesying. What would be young in the millennial kingdom? I don't know. Could there be little six, seven, eight-year-olds running around? I saw a vision. Little 12-year-olds. You say, never. I will tell you, I preached my first message when I was 12 years old. And where I was from, there were some younger than me. So don't squelch when some young person says, I think God's call is on me. I'm supposed to be teaching and preaching his word. Encourage them in it. I ask you, in the millennial kingdom, how old could an old person be? old. How old? How old can an old person be in the millennial kingdom? Let me give you a hint. The curse has been lifted. They're not getting old. They're not, they're not, they're not dying. Depending how old they are when they go in the millennial kingdom. By the end of the millennial kingdom, you could have people over a thousand years old. I want you to picture this. An old man over a thousand years old, he has no less energy than he's had at any point in his life, and he's still Getting dreams and going out and declaring the word of God just as much as he ever has. I think a subtle message, at least for us this morning, is you don't ever retire on the Lord. What you ought to be doing is say, Jeff, I'm old. I'm feeling the effects. I get it. I'm feeling the effects of the curse on my body. But what you should be doing is saying, I don't know how vivid these visions or dreams could be. But I know this. God could give a person a message that is pertinent to them and it's pertinent to someone else or pertinent to a group of people. And no, no matter what their age, no matter how young, no matter how old. If you're old, if you're a true Christian, used to serve the Lord here, used to serve the Lord here, but now you're here. I invite you study this out and ask the Lord, Lord, give me such a vivid impression of my purpose in life that it just fuels me until you take me home. I want to die serving you. I don't want to die kind of talking about what I used to do and merely praying for other people who are out in the battlefield. Like, get in the battlefield. All of you. Your old men shall dream drink dream. In other words, God, give me the energy to do everything you want me to do and then just take me home when it's time. And then the last thing this morning is verse 21. Jeff, if verse 19 and 20 we know are still future, why did he include it? Apparently... Peter doesn't want to just skip it to get down to verse 21. But verse 21, if you'll write this quickly. Verse 21 is like verse 17 and 18 in that it has a present. It has a past, a present, and a future fulfillment. It has a present and a past. I know I didn't use the word present, I don't think. But I'm sorry, past. But verse 21, here's what it says. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter Interprets that, hey, we're in the last days. It's already starting. What's already starting? The time period where it shall come to pass that everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. Watch. Let's jump to the millennial kingdom. Right before the millennial kingdom. Just before it. There's going to be a group of Jews on earth. And they're, they're, they're bottled in by the armies of the Antichrist. They're just outside Jerusalem. They're about to be destroyed. But then Christ comes down just above the Mount of Olives where he left. And the Bible says the Jews will look on him whom they pierced and they will run to him. And the Lord will cause the Mount of Olives to split open. And the Jews will run to that and there's going to be a haven there. And then Romans says that all the Jews at that time period, all of them on the earth are going to be saved at that moment. No doubt what's going to happen is they're going to look. They're going to recognize we've been wrong. You really are our savior. These people are about to kill us. They're going to cry out to the Lord. They're going to call on him and he's going to save them. How many? 100%. 100% of them is going and it shall come to pass. Everyone who calls on them, all those Jews are going to get saved. Fast forward further into the millennial kingdom. All the people who go in with physical bodies are going to have the Holy Spirit, but they're going to have offspring. And those offspring are not just automatically going to get saved. They're not born saved. They're going to have to be taught. They're not going to die. The death has been lifted. The curse has been lifted. So those people are going to to be taught about Christ. And then all of them who call on the name of the Lord in the millennial kingdom, they will be saved. All of them will be saved. All the Jews just before the millennial kingdom. All the people who are born in the millennial kingdom who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So that's both the future. What about now? Everyone in the church age who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I mean everyone. Last thing I have you do, flip over to Romans. Chapter 10, Romans 10. You say, this verse sounds familiar. I thought i have heard it elsewhere. I didn't know it was in Joel. Here I see it in Acts chapter 2. Yes, Paul brings it in in Romans chapter 10. Paul's going to bring the verse in from Joel as well. But Paul's going to add a clarity to it that Peter does not even realize when he says it on the day of Pentecost. But I'm backing you up to verse 11 for... The fullness. Look at verse 11, Romans 10, 11. Hey guys, act like you've never heard this. For the scripture says, everyone, everyone who believes, every, that's important. Here's why I backed up to 11. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone, what, Paul, what do you mean? Everyone. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The idea of Jew. And Gentiles. So there's the Jews. We know that they're the people of God and he's their Lord. We know, we know when they call out on him, they'll be saved. Paul says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And then he says, if that's not clear enough, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Peter Watch this. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, is saying, "This is a pre impartial fulfillment of that, and it includes verse 21, and he don't even know fully, doesn't even know fully the ramifications. because in Acts chapter 10, Peters going to struggle. Can Gentiles get saved? They didn't have Romans and Galatians and Ephesians yet. They're having to live it out, and Peter's going to be the one who's going to lead, in essence, the first Gentile into the church. He's already said it. He's right when he says it in Acts chapter 2, but he doesn't even understand all that he's saying. What a great promise. Think about this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, I'm adding this, with faith, Romans 10 11. Picture it. I believe you, God. I know you promised, Romans 10 11, and 13. Joel chapter 2, verse 32. Acts chapter 2, verse number 21. You said everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So I'm going to call everyone who calls, believing they're all saved. That's the good news. Write that thought down. Thankfully, all who call on Jesus to save them with faith, all will be saved. But it's a frightening promise too. Here's why. But only those who call. All who call will be saved But only, only those who call by faith. Only those who call by faith will be saved. One last time, would you journey with me to the future? Biblically, here's what we learn from Revelation chapter 16, verses 9 and 11. Will you go with me? One last journey, watch. It's the time period just before the millennial kingdom and Christ is getting ready to come back. It's really bad. They're in the great tribulation. Do you know that the Jews will turn to Christ and they'll be saved? But almost like all the rest of the people, they're not going to be saved. They're going to be destroyed. You say, is God not going to honor the promise of Joel in Acts 2? Joel said it. Peter doubled down on it. Paul tripled down on it. Is God not going to honor his promise? They're not going to be saved. They're going to be destroyed. Not because God does not honor His promise. They're going to be destroyed because they will not call. They're not going to recall. They're not going to call out on the Lord. Revelation 16 verse 9 11 says they're still going to refuse. Even though all this is happening, they're, going to they're so blinded, they're going to refuse to call on the name of the Lord. If they would call, they'd be saved. Here's what blows my mind for 2,000 years. The world has steadily been advancing with the gospel. And more and more people have been hearing the message of the gospel. But most people do not call on the name of the Lord. They will hear the gospel. They'll, be, they'll hear this promise. Do you know that everyone who calls all, whosoever, will call on the name of the Lord? Whosoever. You don't have to be Jewish. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, good to know. And they leave it right there. Most people never call. And you know what blows my mind more than that? And it scares me. Is right here in this room this morning. There are sitting people. And there's somebody possibly watching this now or later. You have heard many, many sermons. You've heard many pleas. Many pleas to you. You've heard it. But you still, and literally, you still sit here this morning. You cannot remember a time where you have called on the name of the Lord. Is everybody getting what I'm saying? Everybody who calls ends up getting saved. Not many call on the name of the Lord. They will not be saved. And even some people who hear it over and over and over. Some sitting here this morning who can't remember a time in their life where they've called out on the Lord. So I'm going to finish right here. There's two two groups of people. One group, one person. They called on the name of the Lord, but they didn't mean it. They were just saying words, repeat after me. They had in their back of their mind... Lord, I'm calling on you, but I'm also doing my part. And you know I'm not really that bad, and so I'd like to go to heaven. They're not saved because they're mixing works in with their calling on the Lord. But in this room this morning, there are people in are They're listening to me right now, and they're sitting there thinking, Oh, that's me. And you still cannot remember a time in your life where you've called on the name of the Lord. I ask you, Why? What are you waiting on? You have an eternal soul. You cannot place a price on it. Your soul is priceless. If you were to gain the whole world but lose your soul, you have nothing. If you were to say, Lord, what can I give in exchange? For? There's not. You cannot have enough to give in exchange for your soul. If that is you, I plead with you this morning. Take him up on it. You say, when? That sounds like something I ought to do. Right now. Right now, heads bowed, eyes closed, just for a moment. Heads bowed, eyes closed. If that is you, if you're sitting there, your heart is racing like mine was in 1979, and you're like, I have, I've heard this over and over. There's not a time in my life. Maybe you're sitting there, you're like, I, I make an assumption. Surely at some point I've done this. I'm, I was in a Christian home. I've done this. Surely. If you don't remember, I'm not saying you have to remember the date. I'm not saying you have to remember what you were wearing. But do you remember, yes, there was a time in my life. And that was that time, and I know I've gone face to face with the Lord and confessed my sins. If you've never done that, and then by faith, by faith, God, I take you up on that. If you've never done that, do it right now. You don't need me to tell you the perfect words. There are no perfect words. It's about your heart. Just say, Lord, I want to claim this verse. You said everyone, so I'm doing it. I ask you to save me. Please save me. Ask him and believe. Know that he will. Would you do it now? Just before I pray, Christians, be faithful to put yourself under the preaching of the word of God. Be faithful to be an ambassador for Christ. Because we're in the last days. We're in the last days. The time to win the lost is nearing an end. Would you stand with me this morning father thank you for such a great glorious promise as verse 21 thank you for that thank you that it included me thank you for the faith you gave me I just believe you and I know you saved me I thank you for that Lord if anyone here this morning has yet to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved may they do it right now don't let them leave Lord don't let them walk out the door let them call Lord if someone is watching online right now Whatever they're doing, if they need to go in another room, need to tell their family, I'll be back. i got to do something. And just go concentrate and say, Lord, you said this. And just take you up on that promise and invite you to save them, believing. Lord, let them do that. Lord, I pray that those that have done that, that they would make it known. That they'd not be ashamed of you. That they would say, hey, I have asked the Lord to save me. He is my Lord and Savior now. I pray that you would give them that boldness. Thank you for filling us with your spirit. Lord, may we go out today and be the ambassadors for Christ you've called us to be. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for